From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. You know, Ayn Rand has a great line in, in one of the essays in Capitalism and the Deal about how can you expect a housewife to get all the, the intricacies of why a billionaire is a billionaire. I don't blame people for hating billionaires. They hate billionaires because they've been told over and over and over again that the world is a zero-sum world and the billionaires became billionaires by stealing from them. So of course they're going to hate them. Now, I can try to explain the opposite and I think they'll get it and that's my job and that's what I try to do. But, it, but how many people are doing that? right? And, and well, if- and that, that brings me to the question of you know, uh, the state of making the case for capitalism, for freedom. And, and in some ways, it, it, it's just dismal, right? You know, it's it's like it doesn't exist. I mean, there's, there's, you know, if I look online, and you know, there are a lot of good free market economists. There are a lot of good people who understand free markets. I don't see them. I don't know where they are. They're teaching in a classroom somewhere. Maybe they're writing a book that nobody reads. Maybe they they write a column somewhere, a blog somewhere, but nobody's reading it. Um, there, there's a there's a, you know, maybe there's a couple of dozen people. Were actively engaged in the fight of exp- in, in education. Is part of that is that part of that uh, going back to economists wanting to be, you know, more scientific and and not make moral stands. That that breach between saying, you know, all we do is observe reality, we describe reality, and here's the best way to describe an economy. But we're not going to tell you that this is good. This is the right way to do it. My experience has been uh, with lots of good free market economists and in, in, in the Montpelier Society. It yeah. seems like there are people who who really understand the argument for freedom, but they don't want to say this is moral, this is right, this is good. So they certainly don't want to get into morality. That's absolutely true. But it's, it's, it's not even that. They don't even make the economic arguments. You know, wh- where were they in the financial crisis? It used to drive me nuts. In 2008-9, explaining to the world that this wasn't caused by free markets. They weren't free in 2007, and it was all about government policy, all about regulations. It was too too many regulations, not too few. Exact opposite rhetoric of what everybody was saying. Where were they? I know there are hundreds of them out there that believe that. So partially because they don't want to get into morality, they, they lack the confidence. They lack the passion. They're also academics. So they tend to like their books and their articles and, and their offices and their classrooms. It's small. It's safe. I mean, some of them are cowards. Right? Let me say this on your show. They're cowards. Where are all the free market economists? You're cowards. Get out there and start talking. The world's going to hell and you're doing nothing. So, you know, they're being cowards. So I think there's a lot of that. There's, there's cowardice because you're in a university community. You don't want the leftist economists not to like you. No, you got to have a collegiality type of thing. Collegiality, all this, all this nonsense. Uh, and then even the free market think tanks. A lot of them write the, the latest white paper, and there's, you know, white paper after white paper after white paper. Who cares, right? So they send, and who do they send it to? They send the white papers to politicians. What difference is that going to make? It's not like the politicians care, right? Uh, so. Why aren't they spending time on campuses? Why aren't they spending time with the American people, educating them, teaching them? You know, exp- now, there are a few. I don't want to paint everybody. There are few, and they're very courageous, and they do good work. 
why aren't they going around the world explaining these ideas too? Again, there were a few. There's a, well, there's, are there isn't there a growing few? I mean, even though it's not very many, it was. But then COVID hit, and I, I it, what I, what I get is silence. I get this massive silence. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Maybe I think it's a growing. Th- I think it's growing number. I think there are more of us today. But look, where's the Milton Friedman of today? Right, not only a great economist, who who. A great communicator as well. But he, but he was also he got his creds in economics, right? He got the Nobel Prize. He didn't get the Nobel Prize for free market work. He got the Nobel Prize for academic work that he did in economics. And then he was a great communicator. And he wrote books. And he did TV. And he did videos. And he did debates. And he did lectures. And he was all over the place talking. And we just don't have... And that was one guy. And I think to a large extent, he and, and Ayn Rand and... And you could argue Mises and Hayek changed the world to some extent. I think we wouldn't have gotten Reagan and Thatcher if not for them. There should be a hundred of those today. There should be a thousand of those today. We're a generation later, right? Um, and I think there are more. They're not as good. And they're not as out there. They're not as courageous. They're not as in your face. I mean, you've got... I mean, one of the pleasures of watching Milton Friedman speak is he, he, he laughs, he chuckles, he... He, but he says it like it is. He doesn't whitewash it. Now, even he didn't want to go on to the moral dimension. Right. And it just shows what an economist can do even if you don't go to the moral dimension. He would have been even better if he could have made a moral case or at least... But he had a moral fervor to him, which I think a lot of the economists today don't have, a, yeah. a fervor. I, I find most free market economists are much more comfortable talking to one another and talking to you know, uh, libertarian students, then they are going out and engaging in the actual debate um, with, with, with people who disagree. So if you could persuade those free market economists out there to be more engaged, what would that look like? Well, they'd be, they'd be uh, uh, much more aggressive. They'd be much more visible in the media. I, I think they'd, be, they'd, they'd at least try. Maybe they're trying and they're failing to get on the media, but I, I suspect they're not even trying. Um, I think that they would be on, on college campuses nonstop. I think they'd be a lot more on YouTube. They'd be a lot more doing podcasts like this. They'd be, they'd just be a, a much broader. They'd be going on on other people's shows and and talking to other people. They would just be, you know, I try, um, and I'm much more radical than most of them because I have a whole philosophy. I'm an atheist. The religious guys don't want me. I'm a, I'm a, a have a foreign policy. Uh, that's pretty tough. So uh, the the pacifists don't want me. I'm, you know, so it's, it's so I go out there with a whole package associated with Ayn Rand that makes it much more difficult. I'm an egoist, right? I'm, 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 I I believe in self interest. Uh, they just have economics. It it they they need to, you know, this shouldn't be that hard to go out there and just make things. And I know a few who do. That is, there's some proven people, you know, and and, and you hire some of them. He would help you. I mean, Dan Mitchell is a good example. He's got a what did he put out a blog post every day with with great stuff. Yeah, Dan's great. In fact, I hope hope to have him on this. Uh, this yeah, podcast. you should. And he he travels all over all over the world speaking about these things. And he and he's not a you know and he and he tells it like it is. Right. Uh, I wish he had a little bit more moral fervor, but but you know partially it's his personality, but partially it's the lack of that philosophy. But. But he's the kind of guy who goes out there and does the work and is doing the work and he believes in it and 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 he does a good job. So we need, if we had a thousand like that, then we change the world. Um, who who are the up and coming objectivists? You know, having the full complement of Ayn Rand's philosophy, 
uh, but but economics, uh, economists, who are they? Well, I don't know that we have them in economics, right? I mean, um, Alex Epstein does work in policy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not economics per se, but it's policy. And he does good work. Don Watkins does stuff related to policy. But do we have trained economists? There are a few trained economists, but again, they're not... Um, they're not uh, super out there that, you know, and they haven't reached a, a kind of status within a profession where people where people respect them and, and take them in. But there are some economists, uh, trained economists who are objectivists who are, uh, I think, trying to establish themselves. But And it's hard. It's not easy. I'm, I'm not saying any of this is easy, but it's just, it is frustrating, though, to... Um, you know, not to see more. Uh, we're twenty. You know, we're in the twenty-first century, um, and we should have learned so needed. much. So We've I mean, learned so much. Capitalism has proved itself so much. Markets have proved themselves so much, and uh, we've had great teachers. In, the economists have had great teachers, Mises, and and so on. It's much. It's a, you know the free markets are mature. I mean, you know, take somebody like Tyler Cowens. You know, does some work on this, but he's also He's eclectic, and he likes to. He's not an advocate, mm -hmm. uh, although on some issues he is, and some issues he isn't. You know, I love John Cochran, who's very good at this and does a lot and writes a lot and is out there. But uh, I just wish there was there was a thousand, and and not just economists, right? Philosophers, uh, foreign policy experts, polit uh, you know, pol pol political science experts like Brad, somebody like Brad Thompson from Clemson University. And and uh, and Greg Salamieri, who's at University of Texas in 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 uh, in philosophy, there's a handful, right? But w we need we need numbers. We need uh, numbers and and numbers who are active and engaged in the culture in the world. So I was you know starting off with the foreign policy and wondered if you had anything else you wanted to say about that. Just specifically, I d I did want to you know move more toward uh, a new thing that you're working on, uh, but do uh, you have anything else you want to say about foreign policy, capitalist foreign policy? I mean, a capitalist foreign policy is the protection of, of the lives and property of, 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 your, of your countrymen and the protection of their ability to trade with other people. So the one place where the Navy should be out there in the world is we should be protecting shipping lanes. So that, and, and the one threat that China, I guess, poses in Asia is, is a threat to the shipping lanes and we should show a show of force that we're going to protect those shipping lanes. Um, in terms of terrorism, we, we should be we should be adamant about uh, penalizing any country that supports terrorism, even if that includes countries like Saudi Arabia that we today consider allies. A country like Saudi Arabia cannot be a true ally of the United States. Um, so, I mean, I I, I think my foreign policy is fairly easy. It, it it's hard to execute, <laughs> and it, there are a lot of borderline cases. But it's much easier than the perspective there is today, which is a mishmash of nothing with no policy, no principle, and just f fly by night. And again, with China, beware of conflating your economic worries, and I wouldn't worry economically, with because I think trade is win-win. So China benefits from trade, we benefit from trade. China gets richer, we'll get richer. The richer China gets, the richer we'll get, as long as we stay reasonably free. Um, I'd say... Uh, the worry should be, what are they? What kind of military bases are they building in the South China Sea? Do they intend to, to try to control the shipping lanes and try to block them? Um, what kind of military are they building? 
what are their military ambitions? Those, we should focus on potential violations of individual rights. And that has to do with the military. And then focus on emboldening the citizens, the, the, the people of China, emboldening them to take matters into their own hands. One more uh, question around, and this may be able to go down a rabbit hole, but uh, around sort of foreign policy, the whole issue of immigration. Um, <laughs> certainly Trump didn't get it right, and Biden doesn't seem to be getting right at all. Um, you know, there, it, and it's hard because we don't have a proper domestic policy. I mean, we have a welfare regulatory state, and that creates its own sorts of incentives for uh, people who are trying to immigrate here. Um, what would be the best approach to the borders right now in the given context? You have to completely revamp immigration law, completely. You have to make it really, really easy for people to come here. Maybe make it really, really hard for them to get welfare. Maybe make it impossible for them to get welfare. I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to make it impossible for Americans to get welfare. But make it re impossible for immigrants to get more welfare. Uh, let's say for 10 years or for 20 years or for whatever. Um, but you have conservatives who might be listening to this who'd say, well, wait, you know, Biden is making it easy and that's causing a problem. That, you know, What's the problem? The problem, is, the problem is we're trying to stop them. That's not, the problem is not the immigrants. The problem is our stupid policy. The problem is that we don't, uh, we don't have an easy way for parents to bring their kids over the border. So the parents love their kids so much and care so much about liberty and freedom for their children that they're willing to throw them off the wall. I mean, think about that if you're a parent and you're born in a poor, violent culture where your children have no future and somebody says, I can get them into America. It must be the hardest thing you can do. But, wow, you, 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 you're trying to take care of your children. You're trying to, you care about your kids. You're trying to have them grow up in a place that has freedom and liberty. I mean, that's an act of unbelievable love, right? And yet, what do we want to do? We want to put them into camps and we want to control them. I mean, if you made it easy for the parents to come, then they wouldn't send their kids by themselves. So our how, immigration how policy our... is insane. How much of our immigration policy is wrapped up in our drug war and, and that whole thing? I mean, a lot of it. I mean, and by the way, part of the reason why some of these countries are unlivable is because of our drug war, yeah. right? Why there's so much violence in Guatemala and, and, and some of these places uh, in, in, in Central America. It's because of our drug war. It's because they, 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 they grow drugs there and they, they, trade, they, they smuggle drugs into the United States. Um, and, and therefore, you create gangs and you will fight each other. Yeah, you want to solve the immigration problem? Make drugs legal. Uh, first of all, people would stay in their countries. More likely, they'd stay in their countries. But look, the solution to immigration is to make immigration, legal immigration, easy. Two million, come on over. Three million, come on over. Five million, come on over. What's, it's win-win. We all benefit from more people. We don't, we don't lose from more people. We benefit. Now, Why is that so hard for most Americans to get? I mean, uh, whether they're left or right. Well, the, it's the same reason they don't get trade, right? It's because, because the, the, well, I mean, the right has different reasons than the left to some extent. But part of it is a zero-sum mentality that has been 
fed to us by our intellectuals for, for generations now. A, a, an anti-capitalist view. Look, immigration equals capitalism. If you're anti-immigration, you're anti-capitalism. Um, immigration means, look, freedom means the free movement of goods, zero tariffs, capital, zero capital controls, and people, zero labor, labor limitations. That's true freedom. It's why when you have in the United States, which is an enormous country, we don't control the movement of goods, the movement of capital, and the movement of people within the United States. Because that makes sense. That's freedom. That's what it means. If you want a free world, if you embrace freedom, why would you keep people out? People are a resource. If you think from a purely economic perspective, people are an input into a production machine. When the United States in the 19th century had no immigration controls, basically, had open immigration, um, it grew at the fastest rates of any country in human history. It produced the richest country in all of human history. It produced the strongest militarily country in all of human history. Uh, it created more jobs than all the millions of immigrants that came here. There were still not enough people. We needed more immigrants to fill the jobs. That's what freedom does. It's another untold story, though. I mean, most, most Americans don't understand that They don't even that know that. They have no conception. And immigration is never linked to capitalism. Yeah, people came. We know the stories of Ellis Island. All right. And then, then, oh, capitalism was horrible. But somehow, somehow, this is stunning, right? But people don't think. That's the biggest problem in the world. People just don't think. And thinking means making connections between things. 1776, the United States fights a war with, with, great, with the Great Britain. We're a poor colony. We're, not, we're barely worth fighting. I mean, Britain is much more concerned about France and, and, and Spain, and that's why we win the, the War of Independence. It's basically because England doesn't care that much. Uh, there are more important things to, to worry about, right? So we're poor. We have nothing, right? 140 years later, we're the strongest, biggest economy in the world, strongest military in the world. How did that happen? How did that happen? And in the meantime, we absorbed the greatest migration of people probably ever on a per capita basis. So the number of people in America and the number of people who came in, huge migration. And yet we got richer. And at the same time, we had this evil thing called capitalism. Like there were no regulations, no welfare. So millions of people must have died in the streets. Millions must have died in the streets. <laughs> How did we become from the poor country to the richest country in the world while we had this evil thing called capitalism and open borders. Yeah. Capitalism works and open immigration and immigration is a good thing. And what the United States needs to do is, is, is make it really, really easy to anybody who can, who, who can find a job in the United States to come in, to come in and get work. And so, yes, some Americans will be worse off. Let's be honest about this. But those Americans are Americans who have not taken advantage of the fact that they were born in America, have not taken advantage of the educational opportunities they have here, have not taken advantage of the opportunities to advance and to, and to learn and to become more productive, and they're going to be competed out of jobs. So, they, so wake up, Americans, because you know what? The alternative is that the jobs will just go to Mexico or to China. So you just identified thinking is the biggest problem in the world. Yeah. Is... Is the case for capitalism not being sold properly as a result of the intellectuals or is it the capitalists? 
I mean, the capitalists are not very good capitalists. I mean, in, in the sense that they, they're great money makers, they're great productive money makers, but they fund, I mean, you know, the whole Lenin thing, they're going to sell us the rope. I mean, uh, but that's, that's true, but it's also, it's hard to blame them. Look, so let's say you're Steve Jobs and, um, and, and you're running a successful company, incredibly productive and you're changing the world and, and you're making tons of money and you're being attacked and, and, and you have these politicians who are sitting over, uh, uh, sitting over you and they could crush you. They could just, with a flick of one little bill, one, one change in regulation, they could destroy you. They could break you up. Look what happened to Bill Gates. So it takes a very unique kind of human being to be able to invest all your efforts into building this business and creating this values. And, you know, this is a full-time job being a CEO of a major company. And then have the courage and the knowledge and the moral certitude to stand up to the politicians, tell them to go to hell. Now, I wish they do that. So and that's I wish... a good segue. It looks like maybe Amazon did a little bit of that with uh, yeah, your Yeah, Amazon favorite, did a little bit with, uh... with Elizabeth Warren on, on Twitter. So maybe it's starting to happen. And it turns out that that was from the top. That was Jeff Bezos saying, enough. We, we need to defend ourselves. We need to stand up to these bastards. But imagine if they did that. Imagine if they stood up in Congress. Now, it's true. I'm not sure how the American people today would take it. But when, I mean, this is the reality. We won't get capitalism until the capitalists, until the businessmen men stand up for themselves. Now, I understand why it's so hard for them. So I don't, I don't blame them in a sense that I, I don't blame Zuckerberg for trying to, you're going to regulate me anyway. Let me write the regulation and sell it to you. Uh, of course, he's going to do that. Now, remember, Zuckerberg is a product of his education, of his environment, of, of his own thinking, which is good in business and not good elsewhere. He's an altruist. He's a collectivist. And, and he, he's not a pro-capitalist. So how's he going to stand up to the government? On, on what basis? So right now it's intellectuals. And, and the, part of what the job of the intellectuals is is to, is to inspire and to train and to give the intellectual ammunition to the businessmen. And then maybe the businessmen can stand up for themselves. But don't expect the businessmen to stand up if the intellectuals are cowards. So I do want to go down that path a little bit. The whole we kind of touch on the big tech thing. Um, it seems like uh, Justice Thomas just recently wrote some things about that, and he's the best we got, right? I mean, in, in not anymore. You <laughs> based on this uh, most recent? Well, I think I, I mean I'm speculating, but I think Thomas has gone off the deep end. I, I, I think Thomas is... You mean in particular regarding this whole issue of speech? Ideologically, and generally. I think, I think he bought into Trump. I th so look, there's a certain brand of conservatism that believes that we're so far gone. This is the Flight 93. You remember the Flight mm -hmm. 93 essay uh, that uh, Anton wrote? Mm -hmm. uh, the guy who runs one of the main editors at the Claremont Review of Books now. He wrote this article in, in, in 2016 pro, in, in defense of voting for Trump, and it's the Flight 93. And his, his article is basically says this. It says, we've lost. I mean, the world's gone. It's Blow gone. It up. And it's very likely that this plane we're on, Flight 93, is going to crash. Now, the question is, does it crash into the White House, which was what the threat was in 93? And, and really devastate the world. Does it crash and kill us all? Probably, almost certainly. So the, the view of the Anton wing of the Republican Party or the conservative movement is 
The world's going to hell. We have lost. The only chance we have not to lose is to become, and this is my terms, not theirs, is to become fascists for a while. Is to use the mechanisms of power of the state to take over, penalize our enemies, the left, in their view, big tech, right? And then we can bring back the founding fathers and establish freedom and, and liberty in America, right? That's their fantasy. And there's a, there's a big group. I mean, we talked a little bit. There's this, you know, there's, there's all the alt-right. There's a whole segment of the right that thinks that it's lost and the only way to take down the left is through kind of statist fascist means. And some of them would love fascism and think fascism's cool and want authoritarianism and think that's cool, right? But there are these conservatives who say, no, 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 it's just a temporary measure. And I think, I think Thomas is one of those. I, and I think the Trump era has brought that way of thinking to the forefront for many conservatives, many conservatives. Uh, we, we saw that with um, Amari, uh, who is a, uh, a, a conservative who writes uh, for First Things. A lot of these are Catholic conservatives. Uh, we see it. We see it in a lot of different conservative. There are two new think tanks within the conservative movement, but also some of the old think tanks. So there's a whole segment of the conservative movement that now says what we need is we need to use the power of the state to impose our values on society because otherwise we've lost to the left. And that's our only alternative. It's the only way out. And your view is that's a false alternative. Well, my view is you lose either way. Once you use the mechanism of the state to impose your will, it's a lot case. And, and the number of people who actually will advocate for bringing you back to funny fathers is zero, right? <laughs> it's one or two maybe uh, out there. But no, once, first of all, most of them don't believe in the founding fathers. You know, a lot of the, this new right is the common good right, the public interest right, otherwise, you know, the socialist right, the, the nationalist right, the, the, the economic, um, what do they call it, uh, industrial policy right. They, 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 are, they are statists. And, uh, but that, a lot of the conservative movement flipped, used to be good and flipped. And that's amazing to watch because they figured that that's the only way to power. And it's about power. And it's about two things. I've noticed this. It's about two things. It's about power and it's about hating the left. Not disagreeing with the left, but hating the left. Viewing the left as the Islamic terrorists who, who kidnapped, flight, who, who hijacked Flight 93. And that the only solution is to kill them. It's like the people who think we should have machine guns on the wall and shoot all those people who want to emigrate into the United States. That that should be the solution, right? And they're real. There are a lot of Americans who believe that's the solution, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a visceral hatred now for the other, which I think Trump has brought to the... This is why I think Trump is such a bad president. Not because of anything specific he did, but because he's brought out this attitude, this view, this uh, you know, attitude towards the world. Now it's out in the open. It, it, people carry it with pride. So the idea of, of power, and it's all about power, and it's all about hating the left. Um, so 
I don't know where we're going with this, but it's it's a Thomas going back to Thomas. Yeah. I think Thomas has flipped. I think Thomas has changed. Um, you know, and it doesn't surprise me because I I, I haven't. I've, you know, Thomas is very religious. His wife is is very religious, nationalist, conservative type, uh, and she's also moved more and more in that direction over the Trump presidency. Uh, and so when 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 uh, Thomas came out for turning, I mean, this is unbelievable to me, turning the big tech into public utilities, into public utilities, basically nationalizing them. That's what he wants. He wants a national. And, and we're afraid of socialists. These are socialists. He is a socialist. So, no, he's not the best judge. The best judge right now on the bench is Gorsuch, I think. So do you have any more you'd say about the whole issue, uh, the conservatives' view uh, that their their free speech is being shut down, you know, that they, they are not getting – Look, they I, have no access to – I don't like what's going on on social media. I, I don't think this is a good culture where because uh, the social media people uh, are leftists, generally they, they screen out conservatives and they ban them. I don't think that's a good thing. Um, but have I you experienced think, that yourself? I think so. I, not not directly, but I probably think, from both. What's that? From both sides, you're uh, yeah, but censored I, yes. all the way around. Yeah, but I think <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't use the word censored. Right, that's not that's not precise. But I I I think the YouTube, while they surprisingly, this is shocking to me, they pretty much will monetize all my videos. The only videos they won't monetize are videos I talk about sex. Videos I talk about abortion, even though I'm on their side on abortion, but just because it's a it's abortion, they don't monetize it. And but I talk about race. I'm anti-left on the race issue. I'm anti-right on the race issue too, but I'm anti-left. I talk about anything. And they monetize everything. But I do think the algorithms hurt me. I, I do think they suppress my visibility on YouTube. They they don't encourage people to you know, even though I'm an expert on certain things, I don't think they, they elevate me. And I think that, that the, reason, the consequence of that is I get very few new people coming to my channel because YouTube is not, you know, upgrading my stuff and not positioning it where people will see it, even if it's similar in material. I'm sure that's happening on Twitter, on Facebook, and all these things. But fine. I, I, I'm not going to say because of that, you know, I think it's wrong. I, I, I don't like it. Um, I think it's wrong when they kick people off. But it's not a violation of free speech. It's not a violation of First Amendment. It's not, a, it's not something a state should get involved in. And uh, it, it's, they, they're within their rights to do it. And the solution is to, to start alternatives. Uh, and look, if, if it turns out that Twitter is getting phone calls from the government telling them what to do. Then it's a violation of free speech. But then the problem is not Twitter. The problem is the government calling them. Right. Right. So the problem is our politicians. The problem is uh, Ted Cruz and AOC, and I put them together on this, um, calling the CEOs of social media in front of Congress and uh, harassing them to the point where these guys are going to have to moderate their policies to appease Ted Cruz and AOC. So, yeah, it's the politics involvement in business that is the problem, not the business itself. Yeah. 
So let's talk about something a little more uh, positive and, and interesting right now. It seems like there's some pretty good literature coming out these days of people studying innovation. Um, what makes the word really, really go? What, what, what makes good change? Um, you know, Matt Ridley's book. Um, yeah. And you're now involved in a project. Yes. It's Inge- called go ahead. Ingenuism. And you, you can find the material on ingenuism.com. And it, it'll be articles and, and newsletters and, uh, uh, and uh, interviews on YouTube and ultimately maybe even an investment product based on this. Um, so here's the mystery. So this is, there's a mystery out there. And I, and I think it really is a mystery. And I think even uh, objectivists, free market guys, I don't think have, a, have the explanation yet, right? To the, this is the mystery. We have really bad economic policies. We have, uh, you know, horrible politicians. We have a population that's uneducated about important things and, you know, becoming worse and worse and worse in terms of a sense of life, in terms of, its, in terms of its productive ability, in terms of all kinds of, you know, education system that's crumbling, right? Our, our schools are terrible. We talk about this at LP all the time, how awful the schools are. Um, we have, and it's not just the United States, Europe, supposedly we have all these immigrants coming in and dumbing us down even further, right? We have leftist politicians. Even the right is left when it comes to economics. Um, We have whole segments of the world that are still unfree. And yet, and yet, we, we keep growing. You know, we keep getting better. Innovation still happens. Now, it doesn't happen at the speed I'd like. It doesn't happen at the rate I'd like. It doesn't happen on the scale I'd like to see. But it's happening. Life is better today. In spite of all the myths, in spite of everything that people tell you, life is better today than ever in all of human history from a material perspective. Right? Ayn Rand taught us that in order to grow economically, in order to be successful economically, in order to innovate, you need freedom. Then how is it happening? Because we don't have freedom. Um, not, not, not the freedom that we believe in, right? Not, not complete freedom. We've had economists, free market economists, and philosophers tell us the world is doomed for 50 years now. All right? Well, it doesn't happen. Starting to sound like Christian, you know, uh, mil- what do you call it? The, the, the Armageddon. People, Armageddon kind of thing. Every millennium, every, every, every 10 years, the world is going to end, or every millennium it ends, or whatever. You know, millennium occults. And it's, there's always been this pessimism within the um, free market movement, certainly within the objectivist movement, that things are going to, they can't continue. You know, and, and in objectivism, we particularly look at the state of the intellectuals. We've talked about that a lot today. We, talk, we look at philosophy. State of philosophy is terrible. State of intellectuals is terrible. The state of the, 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 the economics profession might not be too bad, but the state of the public intellectuals who teach who talk about economics is terrible why are we doing so well why have we progressed so much from i mean life today i mean pre-covid because who knows what's going to come out of covid 2019 i mean crime was down lowest levels maybe ever certainly since the 50s and 60s um we're living longer. Yes, there's the opioid epidemic, and that's that's a real 
bad sign, but there's no epidemic in Europe. They're living longer. Uh, very few poor people in the world, really, really, really poor. We're richer than we ever were as a, as a, as a human species, right? Uh, we, have, we have amazing technology. What's going on, right? So, so there, there are really two questions that need to be answered. One is, what happened 250 years ago to make what we have today possible? And we kind of know the answer to that. What do you mean kind of? I think we know that. Yeah, but the, the details matter. And, and we don't have a lot of detailed work on what exactly happened, right? Because it, the details matter. And it would be good to have more historians looking at that. We don't have them. We don't have good histories of the enlightenment of the early 19th century about what really happened, right? What was the sequence and how ideas influenced it? How did ideas spread? And what, what, were the, what were the direct consequences? And even if I know and you know, most people don't know. And, and people like Deirdre McCluskey and people like um, um, uh, the guy you mentioned a minute ago. Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley. They're kind of on board with us. Not exactly, mm-hmm. but kind of. Right. Um, okay, so maybe we understand somewhat what happened earlier. I'm not convinced we understand it completely. Okay, but then things started, the state started growing certainly from 1913 on. Certainly in Europe. Europe went through two world wars. I mean, Europe was flattened. Look where they are today. It, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, they're rich. Yet everything was destroyed, and they're still rich. And this is post capitalism, if you will. So what has happened in the last hundred years to make it possible for us to be as successful as we are in spite of the growth of the state, in spite of the mixed economy, in spite of regulation and taxation? What's the history, real history, because I don't think we know the history, and what is it about the nature of capitalism, of innovation, of progress, of economic growth, that makes it possible to continue under non-optimal terms? Now, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I think I have some answers, but I don't think I have all the answers. I don't think anybody does. Um, and then look at the 21st century. Look at the last 20 years. Go back to big tech. We've got five, camp, five companies that have basically created more w- wealth than maybe any five countries, companies in all of history. Um, in one sector. But how did that happen? And, and well, it was, did, wasn't that the freest sector for a long yeah, time? Yeah, but it's not that free. Well, I'm saying for a long time now. Yes. It isn't anymore. I mean, that's and maybe the, it still is the freest sector. But it wasn't that free. Yeah. And, you know, because telecommunication is regulated and labor is regulated and a lot of these things are regulated so and and they went after microsoft remember microsoft they went after them so that slowed things down they probably would have created even more wealth without it how did that happen and why on such an unprecedented scale on a scale we've never seen before i mean think about apple what was apple in 2000 what was starting to sell other things everybody was like you can't compete with walmart (laughs) right you're never going to be successful and they were, but they were nothing company, zero. I mean, there's a chart of the richest people in the world. And Jeff Bezos doesn't become the richest person in the world until very recently. I used to complain that on airplanes, I couldn't work because there was no internet. It sucked. And that's not that long ago. And then when there was internet, 
It was like so slow. And then it got faster, but I, I couldn't stream YouTube. I could do everything else, but I couldn't stream YouTube, and that pissed me off. Now, on a plane, 30,000 feet in the air, I have access to, to high-speed internet. I can stream YouTube. I can watch. I can stream movies, not just download movies. And that's only going to get faster. You know, Musk is putting up tens of thousands of small satellites that are going to be all over the, the, the low... Um, uh, they're going to go around the planet and are basically going to provide high-speed internet ubiquitously across the entire globe. Everybody on planet Earth who has a device will be able to get high-speed internet. So... How is that happening? What the hell? Why is that happening? And is that reason to be optimistic that maybe things are not going to... So that's what I want to study. And I have some ideas um, about what's happened that makes this possible. I have some ideas about sudden and, and the just beginning of ideas about uh, scale in economics and and how when you, you know, how, how you can develop and lead to develop and lead to development. And unless you kill it, unless you kill it, and unless you crush it, it's going to find a way out. So the regulators have to be a lot more brutal to kill innovation uh, because there's so many avenues for which this will take. I mean, and we haven't even talked about biotech. I mean, you can now easily modify genes. CRISPR is this unbelievable technology. We just started. And take, take, take the vaccines. Right, and maybe there are a lot of anti-vaxxers listening, but um, you shouldn't be anti-vaxxers. The science is amazing. It took Moderna two days to develop the vaccine. Two days. Why? Because they've been doing RNA research for decades. It's it's been forty years, and it's been built. Lots of failure along the way. They've been trying to make RNA uh, 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 treatments for cancer, and they, they haven't been able to. But they keep getting better because they keep failing and learning and failing and learning and failing and learning. And this is a big factor for, with innovation is failure. You got to fail and learn and fail and learn and fail. And you got to allow failure and you got to allow learning from failure. You got to allow people to try over and over again. And and it's at some point. I mean, timing. You talk about timing with Zoom. Timing with vaccines, unbelievable, Definitely. right? Because we reached a point where they've learned so much. And they got the genomic sequence. And they were already developing vaccines for like Ebola and other things, but their markets were too small, so they weren't investing a lot in. Where everything came together where they have, they've got a pandemic, so there's lots of resources. There's reason to develop this fast. They've got the genomics, oh, gene sequencing, right? So, some, so a few decades ago, there was this, uh, it's not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago, there was this competition between two groups to sequence the human genome. One was a government funding project. One was a private project. Who do you think won? <laughs> private guy won. Greg Vinatieri, I think is his name, and won this company. Sequencing the human genome. So we can now sequence anything. And it took weeks to see. Now you can do it like that, right? So if you start adding our knowledge about genes with computing power, with our understanding of of proteins and cells and the human body. The leverage that that gives you and, and the leverage the computer power gives you, the leverage Moore's law, Moore's law says that the, 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 something like the speed of the chips doubles every two years or something like that. If you add that up, 
the amount, you know, there's so much there. So it almost sounds like you're saying there's no stopping capitalism now. There's just uh, no. You can stop it, but it will have to be brutal. It, yeah. You, so you but have to not, be brutal. But and, that's not going to happen. And the innovation is only happening in places where you can deploy these things. But this is the amazing thing. You, because computers, and this is why I'm so optimistic, right? Because computers are um, everywhere, can be everywhere. So, for example, there's almost no innovation in airplanes because, because of the FAA. Airplanes actually gotten slower. But now, I can put a computer inside of airplane, and theoretically, the computer can fly the airplane. I probably don't need pilots. Probably do a better job, safer, right? Um, I can have the computer design airplanes. I can maybe use a computer to design supersonic airplanes that maybe solve some of the problems that caused them to not exist in the past. I can use computers to design nuclear power plants. I can have the computers run the nuclear power plants in a way that's much safer than human error and stuff like that. So once you introduce computers, and now I know people are afraid of this because they think, oh, the computer will wake up and take over the world. But once you can introduce computers into all these different things, then you're getting around the regulations in ways that, and the regulators can't keep up. This is something we know for finance, right? One of, the, one of the things we know for finance is that why is there constantly financial innovation? Because the regulators cannot keep up. You think the regulators know what a CDS is? You think they know how to price it? So they can't regulate because they don't understand. So they can ban it, and they do sometimes ban something. And when they ban it, financial markets figure out something else to replace it, right? So right now, we just had this big hedge fund blow up, right? Uh, Credit Seas took a huge hit. and I don't even know what they were doing. They were doing some exotic swaps, and which, which gave them leverage on the stock portfolio that they own. They own a regular stock portfolio, but they were doing all kind of... I don't, you think the regulators understand one iota of what they did? No. So as we get more complex and more sophisticated and introduce more computers and more technology, the regulators just, they won't be able to keep track of it. And, and this, I think this is why people who are in Bitcoin and people in crypto are so optimistic because that's another level of complexity and removing from the state and from regulators. Again, they can use brute force. They can smash my computer. They can smash. But that's harder. It's much harder. For example, you can destroy the automobile industry by putting on a few regulations. Very difficult to destroy the computer industry at this point. So, but if we understand the processes, then I think, and, and if we can teach people what those processes are, if we can show them what they are, then maybe there'll be more opposition to regulations and more opposition to constraints. Well, is that sort of the, the theme of your your venture to, to teach people? Is it more educational? The theme is both. Well, it's both. It's to understand and to teach. So it's to really figure it out. And part of that, if we can figure it out, maybe there's an investment angle to it, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you can identify companies that leverage whatever it is that makes it possible to be so successful. But it, And then it's to teach people, to teach people what the causes of progress are, what the causes of innovation are, what kind of culture we need to innovate, for example. And, I, and it doesn't have to be at the political level because I think, again, politics flows from culture. But if I can convince people that what you need in order to innovate, to, to advance in life, is a culture that respects reason, that respects thinking, that, that, then a, a culture that respects um, failure, that allows for failure, a culture 
that respects connectivity. So what does connectivity mean? Connectivity means that I can have an engineer in China and an engineer in Bulgaria working on a problem together. And we can all be working on a problem. I, I believe that one of the reasons we have advanced for the last 40 years, 50 years, is because of globalization. And it's not just globalization in goods. We saw the Suez Canal. We saw what happens and how you could slow that down. That's slow. Yeah, that's an issue of physical stuff moving yeah, around. But you're but talking now, about ideas. ideas now and, we've globalized ideas. Yeah. We, the internet, the beauty of the internet, the internet's even more than I thought it was, and I already thought it was big before. But now, because the internet globalizes communication, it globalizes collaboration, it globalizes this pyramid of knowledge where we move, we learn from one another and we build on the achievements of other people. But those other people don't have to be Americans. And the people learning from us don't have to be Americans. They could be 7 billion human beings around the planet. Now, it's not all 7 billion. Somebody said to me, oh, but 7 billion people. In a, well, it doesn't, it's, it, even if it's only 5% of the 7 billion, 5% of 7 billion is more than 5% of 300 million. So it's a big number. I, I, I'll give you an example. If, you know, when Rome fell, the knowledge of Rome was lost. Lost for a thousand years. Some of it. Right? Some of it 500. But a, a long time. Right? They, they couldn't build domes. They couldn't build tall buildings. They couldn't do faucets and running water. It's hard to imagine. Oh, oh, one, one more example. Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci um, was an unbelievable genius. And he came up with some real innovations in math and science. And he wrote them down in his notebooks. And that was it. And he kept on living. He didn't have a mechanism by which to teach. and to, So he just wrote them down. People 100 years later, 200 years later, found the notebooks, read them. Whoa, we've just rediscovered this now. For 100 years, they didn't know this stuff. Now, if they'd known it earlier, we would have advanced faster. Knowledge is not going to get lost today. So let's say the United States disappears, collapses, Rome. I don't know how many millions of engineers there are all across the world who have the knowledge to rebuild civilization from an engineering perspective. Scientists. The books are everywhere. Knowledge is now diffused across the entire globe. You would have to have a global catastrophe. What about, Climate change. What about moral knowledge? I'm kidding. <laughs> but no, moral knowledge is there. But, but, but look... Do you understand why I'm asking that? I mean, the thing is that... Yeah, but, but Ayn Rand's books are out there, right? But, yeah. but look, even moral knowledge... I mean, I'm getting in trouble. Human beings survived before Ayn Rand. Right. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. America was founded before Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, and she Capitalism said it, was established before Ayn Rand. Yeah, and she, I think she said you know, that she, she couldn't have made the discoveries yeah. that she made without yeah. having yeah. the example so, of America. So even if they don't quite get egoism in all its detail, if they get some of the enlightenment, if they get the enlightenment at the level of the enlightenment, that's good enough, and those ideas are out there. Uh, you know, uh, uh, if... If you go around the world and ask people, who does your life belong to? Almost nowhere do people say to the state or to the king. They might not say it, but do they behave that way still? Fine, but, but that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a uh, of course they do. Even in America we do, right? But it's, it's, a, um, it's a beginning, it's a seed. 200 years ago, 250 years ago, even in America, even in the colonies, who does your life belong to? King George. So we've come out, now you have 7 billion people saying, my life belongs to me. Now, 
it takes time for them to fully understand what that means. But globalization is unbelievable. And it, it's not something we saw coming, not on the scale, and certainly not with ideas. And all the ideas that embody the enlightenment, that embody reason, that embody, uh, are now diffused. So it's not one place. So it's, it's reason and ability to think. It's collaboration. It's, it's freedom. It's freedom to think. It's freedom to innovate. It's freedom to try. It's freedom to fail. It's, 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 it's freedom to think and to say what you want. Um, you know, these are the kind of things that make it possible to innovate and to grow and to progress and to succeed. And if we can teach people to fight for those, right, with some moral confidence, then that's just another avenue in which to try to change the culture. It doesn't replace the need to teach them philosophy and to argue for a philosophical framework, but it's another perspective on this. People seem to care about, uh, about progress. They, they want another iPhone. They want better stuff, right? And if we can say, yeah, well, but this depends on these things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just this abstraction of political freedom. Yep. Here's in a concrete way how yep. it works, I think is important. Absolutely. And so I'm excited and, about that. Absolutely. And that's, and that's just uh, an example of, you know, people actually applying ideas, you know, yep. in their, in their daily lives and, and, and making their lives better. Um, this has been great. I, I feel like uh, we've covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. I hope you'll come back and talk more with me. Um, sure. It's good to have Happy you too. be so optimistic on the, at the end here. <laughs> I'm looking forward to I'm hearing. I'm an optimistic guy at the end of the day. I mean, I'm looking, life, is, life is good. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your uh, your new venture, and uh, looking forward to hearing um, you continue the fight. Sounds good. Thanks for we'll joining me. Continue together. All right. Sounds good.